This is the Matt Townsend Show. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning. I'm Leanna Tan. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, this show is all about helping you live healthier, happier lives. So I've decided to pick a couple of episodes to play back that do just that. We are going to hear from Dr. Thomas Phelan and Ron Hager today about health and parenting. Uh, I was thinking about it, and I think one of the most interesting phenomena is the relationship between teens and their parents. Growing up, I had watched families I visit or friends and even my own siblings trying to interact with their parents. And sometimes I felt like I was watching National Geographic, you know, predator versus prey, because I think parents often have this desire to talk with and bond with their teens. So they're just trying to wait for any opportunity. And once they see it, they just pounce. But a lot of times I feel like this just makes their teens either flee or and get really distant or get really defensive. So this first interview with Dr. Thomas Phelan discusses this topic and talks about how to communicate more effectively with teens. I have a lot of teenagers, quite honestly. I am a parent of six kids, can't get enough of them. And yet, uh, really, there's something about the this kind of competition. I don't know what it is. It's kids. I think it's teenagers growing into their own individual self but it sometimes creates a big collision between parents and teens. It really does. They're a different breed of cat from the preschoolers, that's for sure. Yeah. And uh, we find a lot of parents, they they sit down at the dinner table and they say to their 16-year-old son, how was your day? He says, fine. They say, what would you do? He says, nothing. They say, did you have social studies? He says, yeah. And they say, what did you do in social studies? He says, we didn't do nothing in social studies. <laughs> and that's the way the conversations go. Yeah. Why is that? What, and, and what mistakes are we making as parents as we try to communicate with our teens, get them to open up? Well, one of the – this may sound funny, but one of the mistakes is asking that question in the first place. Uh, we, we have a saying in our office, never ask your teen, how was your day? Because you know what a lot of uh, teenagers do is they'll translate the question, and they translate it into something like, did you screw up anything today that I need to know about? Mm. And then they get defensive because they're thinking, I don't, I don't need you for this kind of supervision. And, uh, you know, I'm old enough to be on my own, et cetera, et cetera. It's so true because your intent isn't to judge them, but they're, they're thinking you're trying to find something they did wrong. That's right. And, you know, honestly, uh, sometimes the parent's intent is to uh, do kind of a what I call a mini diagnostic, you know, to find out, is there something I need to be worried about here? Uh, and I better check up on you. And teens find that insulting. In fact, they find adolescents insulting. Mm, that's such a great point. I mean, I see that with my kids that it just you can tell really what their intent is because their response is so they're, they're almost offended and they're and they're all they're so protective. So what would we say instead of so how was your day? What would we say? Well, you have several alternatives, and some of them feel kind of uncomfortable to parents. But first of all, if you've been saying, how was your day, and you get that, we call that the adolescent snub, Mm -hmm. then you know at least that's not what you want to say. One option is to say nothing. Just don't talk and see who starts the conversation, see if they talk about something or whatever. One of the things I used to do with my kids was I would talk about myself 
um, I had a son who was pretty pretty grumpy when he was a teenager, and one day coming home from work, I had almost gotten into a fight in the parking lot because some guy thought I'd run just about run him over. So I thought, well, I'll just tell my teen that story. So I said, you won't believe what happened to me today. I almost got in a fight. Well, immediately I had his attention, mm. and I wasn't grilling him about his day, and he was fascinated by the story. So talking about yourself is very helpful, and try and, try and find something interesting and almost uh, newsworthy, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that's actually um, that's pretty interesting, this idea of let them kind of lead the conversation, because... If they do engage you and want to talk, like my son is so proud because he's on the bowling team. And um, he's so excited because it's he thinks it's funny because it's not the studliest thing in the world, but they have a ton of fun when they do it. And he'll bring that up instantly. But if I ask him, so how did you do on your chemistry test? It creates a fight. Let him go where they want to go, huh? Yeah, you got it. Yeah, If they want to bring up the conversation, yeah, just just wait. Because they'll take offense. You know, hundreds of years ago, I mean, maybe three or 400 years, there wasn't any adolescence. Kids uh, grew up. There were still kids. They were 14 or 15. They got jobs. They got married. Uh, the reason we have adolescence now is you have a industrialized society that requires huge amounts of increased education. So these kids, you know, from the time they hit puberty, you know, 11, 12, uh, to 22, they're in school, mm. and they're dependent on their elders, and they, they don't like that. That's a that's not a good thing. So you're absolutely right. Let them, you know, lead the way. I don't think, as a society, I don't think we do a good enough job at all uh, giving our teenagers uh, as much independence as we should. And, and the voice, right? I mean, because we're the authority, we're in the know, they probably hear a lot more negative from us than just supportive listening. They do, and that brings up another thing is, you know, the the kids, uh, you think back to when you were a teenager, how did you feel about sitting down at the dinner table or, mm. and talking with your parents and that kind of thing? <clears throat> and you probably weren't that thrilled thrilled about it, but I think you're right. You know, parents' voice, uh, we have what we call the four cardinal sins and uh, things not to do, and one is uh, nagging, another one's lecturing uh, the kids, and you can imagine, just as you said, what kind of tone of voice goes along with that? Well, it's a it's a condescending, even demeaning tone of voice, and they really don't like that. Is it? Um, is there something? I mean, I always assume too. He's underslept. His hormones are raging as his body's changing. He's 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 kind of probably going through this process of figuring out who he is and how he fits into this great big world. And then he's got a parent that seems to constantly be critiquing. Yeah. And you have one of the worst things you can do is what we call overparenting, which is getting anxious about your kid. And then you, uh, you know, verbalize or voice your anxieties to them, often with anxious questions like we were talking about before. And you're right. He's trying to figure this whole thing. You know, do I, do I have a girlfriend or not? Am I going to have a girlfriend? Uh, do I have friends? Uh, what kind of career and job am I going to have? I mean, they, they have this whole thing they got to figure out in creating their identity and their life. And then you're coming in, and you're, instead of being supportive, you're just adding to the stress, which is not what you want to do. And, and, and interesting, I guess, the mere fact you're using questions puts you in a different space in the hierarchy, right? I mean, you, it's, it's almost questioning versus um, making an observation. I, I, I don't think – when friends talk to friends, it doesn't seem like they just ask a lot of questions. But when parents talk to teens – we probably come at it with a lot of questions. We think the question is the best way to get them talking. But what are some other ways I could get them talking that, that aren't questions? 
Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. The question, first of all, the person in any conversation, the person who's asking the questions is in control. Mm. So just like you said, when you start asking questions, you're putting yourself on a higher level. What you're almost saying is, I'm okay, the parent, but you're maybe not okay. We're not so sure, so let's find out. So I'm going to ask you some questions to try and uh, find out that kind of stuff. And that's not what you want to do. What you want to do is support what they are doing. One of the best things you can do, going back to talking about yourself, talk about uh, what you screwed up when you were a teenager. Talk about what you were afraid of when you were a teenager. Talk about your experience with the opposite sex when you were a teenager and put yourself on the same plane. You don't have to be buddies with them all the time. Hmm. Um, but that's that's a much more supportive thing, and they will. That's how they learn. I mean, uh, about relationships. You don't read a book to them about relationships and expect them to assimilate right. a lot of that. But if you talk to them about what happened to you, they'll be listening. Yeah, I mean, no, and in fact, a lot of times it almost seems like when they're a little younger, almost maybe preteen, they're more willing to ask you that. They're more willing to ask you about your childhood. Um, when you get a little older, I don't know, it almost is like they don't want to start that. But if you can start it and say, holy cow, I had the same thing happen when I was a kid, and you talk about it, they do relax quite a bit. Yeah, they they do. And you get into things like, you know, sex in particular. I mean, they, they want to hear about your sex life about as much as they want to walk barefoot on a hotbed <laughs> of coals. And that's not, uh, you know, a favorite uh, conversation for them. But if you get into some things and start volunteering, and you're comfortable with doing it, which, yeah. of course, a lot of us are not, um, that puts the conversation on a whole different plane. What about boundaries? Um, it seems like a lot of us as parents, we we have this anxiety that we're going to ruin the child, the anxiety that they're going to turn into something that we'll have to deal with. Um, so we either overset boundaries or we underset boundaries. What are the what are the real needs of kids, teenagers when it comes to boundaries? What do they really want from us and what do we need to make sure we deliver? Yeah. I think you know there's a saying kids uh really want limits and um uh, and so on and I don't quite agree with that. I don't think kids like limits, but they do much better when limits are when limits exist and when they're enforced fairly. Hmm. And so I think when your kids get to be teens, it's a good idea to periodically have conversations with them about what the boundaries are going to be. The, you, you, I call it house rules in the, in the book, but you have house rules for things like dating. When can you date one-on-one? Uh, when can you use the car? When can you get your driver's license? Uh, what about hours? What about drug use, alcohol use, and all that kind of stuff? Alcohol use, driving, that stuff should be, and even in a lot of families, what they'll do is write it down, and they'll yeah. make an agreement. Uh, and I think that's a good thing to do. So then they know what the rules are. And your your rule about the rules is you want rules to be fair uh, but minimal. Um, <clears throat> so you don't want to do your over-anxious parent thing, you know, have a little bitty uh, rule for this, that, and the other thing. And uh, I think that's much more reasonable. And then when something bad happens, you've got a, a schema that you can fit it into. And you're saying to do this proactively, not just reactively to the fact that they're late. Now we're going to hammer a rule. You're saying do it all proactively. Yes, that's the best way to do it. I mean, that's hard to do, too. I mean, how many of us actually do that? But that would really be good because the worst thing you want is they, they say they're, uh, you know, the town curfew is midnight and they come in at 1.30. Uh, the worst thing you can do is meet them down at the door and say, now, where were you and this, that, and the other thing. And then they start lying or covering up and you have a big argument at 1.30 in the morning. That's stupid. Uh, what you do is you say, well, you came in at 1.30, that's an hour and a half past. Uh, tomorrow when we're all refreshed, we'll sit down and 
talk about what we need to do about yeah. that. And I guess uh, it's really interesting. Um, anxious parents, it seems like, create anxious kids. Um, because they're they're so anticipating every possible issue. I've seen parents that are so fearful that they actually put ideas in kids' heads. <laughs> right? The kid had never even ever thought of doing such a thing, but because the the parents are so preemptive of those these certain acts, that those kids they actually put the idea in the kid's head. Well, it, it can happen. You know, there's a couple other aspects to it, of it too, and one is that anxious parents pass on genes for anxiety to mm-hmm. the kids, which can make and a lot of there's a lot of uh, emphasis these days on genetics. Not that parenting is 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 not important. It is, but the genes are important too. Right. The other thing uh, about what you were saying is anxious parents produce angry kids, and what that means is if you're my child and I verbalize my anxieties to you on a regular basis. I'm going to make you mad because that that is uh, it's an insult to you. It's the opposite of a vote of confidence. So every time you go out and I say, "Now be sure to use this," be sure you don't do that, be sure you do this, be sure you don't, and all that, I'm I'm aggravating you. Yeah. And you'll find that research shows that you you send the kids out in that frame of mind when they're mad, they are more likely to screw up and to do something that. Uh, gets them in trouble or where they where they get hurt. Yeah. Uh, so all this caution, caution, caution stuff backfires for exactly that reason. Is it um, – there's something that I noticed with uh, one of my clients the other day. They frame their, their child's behavior as lying, as mm-hmm. deviant, as kind of – as disobedient. And what I heard from the child was an inability to be honest with their parents because they, their parents can't take it. They won't hear it. So so it, it, then I see this frustration come out in the child because the child can't share the truth about what they feel because every time they do, the parents go off on a tangent. Um, yeah. But then every time the parents call the child a liar, yeah. their self-esteem of this child, they, they're being branded by their own parent as just a deviant. Yeah. And they, they need another uh, system for dealing with that kind of stuff because I think – you're making a good point. If they are are, are so uh, uptight that the child knows that they're going to have a fit uh, whenever he tells the truth, and you know the statistics are something like, you know, I don't know if you have you seen it, like sixty to seventy percent of sixteen-year-olds lie. I mean, yeah. it's not a it's not an unusual thing. Right. It's not like it's pathological. It's a developmental stage, right? Yeah, that's right. And uh, uh, so, but if they go through it and you're doing it out of fear. Uh, that you're going to upset your parents, and that that whole communication process needs to be reworked from the bottom off because that's, that's bad news. Yeah, and a label. A, I mean, the label of liar. Yeah, that's a pretty heavy thing to be branded permanently by your parents. I think it is, and I think to many kids, liar means uh, uh, subhuman of some kind. Mm. And you know what they're saying is that you you don't deserve to live in the house. You don't deserve for us to love you. And uh, you're hardly a member of the uh, human race. So true. Again, we are speaking today with Dr. Thomas Phelan, and he is the author of the book, One, Two, Three, Magic Teen, Communicate, Connect, and Guide Your Teen to Adulthood. We will take a break, come back, continue this discussion. Basically, Parenting 101, some of the basic things we need to make sure we're getting done and not getting done with our kids. Let's not over-parent, but let's make sure we parent. There's the paradox for you. Stick with us. We'll be right back. 
discussion with Matt and Dr. Thomas Phelan. Talking and communicating with anyone really is an art, but especially with teens. There's a fine line between discussing and lecturing or nagging or critiquing. Dr. Phelan just advised parents to talk about themselves a little bit to open up a discussion rather than just asking nagging questions. And this can really help create an organic conversation. So let's get back to the rest of that interview and hear Dr. Phelan's tips on how parents can maintain a healthy bond with their teens and have fun while still stepping back and letting teens direct themselves. For me, it's a little easier to parent a teen than it is sometimes a toddler. Toddlers, I don't seem to have the patience for. Um, uh, Dr. Phelan, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you. Do you you notice, I mean, is is it true that, you know, some parents just, do teens better than they do toddlers? You know, I think it's probably true, and I think I'm probably the opposite. Uh, so I think all of us are are different. Are different. I, I find with the toddlers, uh, one of the really nice things, it's so nice when you don't have to put their snowsuit on. Right. They can do that themselves. And when they don't do diapers anymore and they can climb into the car by themselves, they can yeah. get dressed and all that. Although from a playful point of view, I always related better, I think, to the toddlers than to the hmm. teens. Yeah. Uh, but you might be the opposite of that. And that, I guess that's the strength of, of having parents. And, um, you know, if you have two of them, if you're fortunate enough to have both in the home, you might have a shot that one of them can handle a teen. That's right. Or one of you can do the toddlers better than the other one pick up when they get to be teens. I think for, for a lot of parents, so the hardest part is getting around that teenage snub. Yeah. When they start indicating that they don't need you mm-hmm. as much. And not to, the part of the big thing is don't take that personally. Yeah, don't be offended. You. Because yeah. you could see a parent being offended and then they turn off. They, they start pulling away, which is of all the times to not pull away from your teen, it's right then. That's right. That's that's what we call the re-snub. So they snub, and then you re-snub, mm. and now you've got. And you know, like I said before, the, what the research seems to show is that when you get, if you don't have an open and friendly relationship between the parent and the teen, they're more likely. The teens are more likely to get hurt with drugs, sex, alcohol, drinking and driving, uh, internet stuff, and all that. So uh, it, it, it's really important to maintain that bond as best you can. You know, it's not going to be perfect. Yeah. You you even bring up you you were in an article you wrote an article or were were did a little Q and A in lifezet dot com, and the title was "Parent Your Teenager Well Then Get Out of the Way." Yeah. Uh, do, do do you think we we're overdoing it still? We we're are we still helicopter parenting? Well, I think a lot of people are. I, you know, I think there are certainly some parents. They throw up their hands. I don't know what to do with this kid, and they just kind of pull out. And they're not the helicopters. They don't ever get off the ground. But I think there are a lot of people that are doing the overparenting, the anxious parenting, and all that. And that's not good either. I mean, one of the best things you can do with a teen is uh, get together with them on a regular basis to do nothing other than just have fun, uh, like go to a movie or go bowling or go something. But not where you're asking them all kind of questions about what do they think about life and you know uh, these things where they can think that you're diagnosing them but just where you, what you're saying to them is i like you i value time with you and let's go have a good time and that mm. that that kind of bonding is really important what do you um how do you not let life 
get involved. I mean, I have I have kids that their primary goal in life seems to be to just have fun. And I, I feel like a lot of times I'm throwing a wet blanket on them where it's like, no, you know what? It's a school night and we've got to do homework. And then all of a sudden they get mad and they think I'm not wanting to have fun. How do I how do I kind of gently, I guess, create the limit for them? Um, I, uh, maybe that goes away if I did if I do spend time regularly with them actually having fun. Well, it it might not automatically. Just if you have fun, uh, the pro- the homework problem won't necessarily go away. But what will happen is if you do have the fun, you have more leverage when it comes to sit down and talk about homework. <clears throat> and I would. You know, do the fun stuff and, and all that, try and have a good relationship. But then you, you what we say with the teens, uh, you, you want to make an appointment with them. When you have a problem, you make an appointment to talk to them about, say, homework. Mm. Uh, and then you say, look, here's, here's the issue I got with the homework. And I think in, in that, it's a, sort of a mini family meeting, maybe just the two of you. But you would uh, say to them that, that your point of view is when dealing with homework, the goal is to get rid of you. You know, if you have a teenager and they're 16 years old, you shouldn't be involved in their homework. Right. They should be doing that kind of stuff. So you you sit down with them and you say, let's talk about homework, and our goal is how are we going to get me out of the picture? Yeah, which which is enticing for them, right? They want yeah. you out of the picture, but but they may not know how to do it. Yeah, they might. And, you know, usually for, I mean, what we do for the younger kids and sometimes for the teens is <clears throat> we'll set up a routine. Uh, uh, for homework every night and trying to agree on it. So, uh, you know, I mean, one of the best routines is you come home from school, you goof off for a little bit, have some to eat, then sit down at 4 o'clock, try to get your homework done before dinner. After dinner, everybody can goof off. Uh, But but 4 o'clock is homework time. And if you want to watch a TV show, you tape it, and you don't do this other stuff, you know. And it's complicated with extracurricular activities and things like that. But routines are very helpful. The worst thing you want is uh, is for you have a system, which is kind of a sloppy one, where the parent says, do you have any homework tonight? That's a horrible, horrible, horrible start. Oh. That means it's the parent's responsibility, not theirs. No, it's so true. And I, my wife says that every night to each kid, and I'm like, Oh, I can already sense that we're if we're not worried about it, they're not worried about it. If we don't remind them, they don't remember. But that's where we're setting them up to fail, huh? Yeah, I think so. And when you said just a minute ago that, oh, you know, that's exactly what they feel inside when you say, do you have any homework? Uh, so you want and, you know, <clears throat> that goes for so many other things. I mean, you still have house rules, but stuff like, you know, going to bed and homework and <clears throat> management of friends, you want to be out of that stuff as much as possible mm. and only intervene if there's a big problem. But, uh, yeah, it's time to have a little powwow and uh, come time. up with a better system that puts the initiative where you reward initiative on their part. Yeah. And it, and it also seems like it, you're, they're turning into this age where it's actually doable. I mean, we have major leverage over our child with a phone, our teenager, because yeah. his phone is, is his lifeline. But he also he got a taste this last summer of making money and putting money away. And it was yeah. pretty I mean, now he's got the taste of it. And he wanted to quit. And we're like, he kept asking us if we could quit. And we're like, well, sure. But if you quit, you're it's just to give you some data, you're going to run out of money. And uh-huh. it what's funny is when we when we just let the consequences of life that be his that he had to pay and he had to pay for his dances and he had to pay for his stuff. Boy, he got another job very quickly. It's powerful when you let kind of the more natural consequences play out. 
Yeah, no, that's wonderful because that that's that is natural consequences, and <clears throat> it's him taking responsibility. And that's why, like I was saying before, I don't think we uh, allow or whatever our teenagers to do enough of that. I'm a big fan of teenagers having jobs where they yeah. they make their money, they manage it. You don't tell them how to manage it. Don't even put it in the bank. I mean, my wife was still putting it in the bank for him, and I'm like, no, 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 no. Yeah, let him go figure yeah. out. Go let him negotiate with the teller. Yep, that's right. And then, and that's part of that thing about uh, you sit down with them and you work out a system where they get rid of you. Yeah. Oh, that's freeing. That's pretty powerful. We've got about two minutes left, Doc. Talk to us. Um, if, if you're just as a, as a parent, as an expert on this, what would you say is really the one thing? I always ask for the one thing that we as parents, if we could just do this consistently, it would create a huge impact in our relationship with our child. Well, my my favorite thing, I think, is probably the uh, one-on-one shared fun. Um, <clears throat> I was saying yesterday to somebody, you know, if if you uh, want to pick just one thing, in uh, you know, uh, and this sounds sacrilegious, but people in our society overrate family fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you got a teenager. A teenager doesn't want to go out with their brothers and sisters all the time to the movie, they, they, but they do like going out with one parent or the other parent some of the time. So I think that one-on-one fun and that bonding and that staying in touch, and you don't have to be talking about, you know, deep philosophical issues all the time, but I think that's very important. And let them talk. If they want to talk, that's fine. If they don't want to talk, you just sit there and watch the movie or eat your cheesecake and, you know, but you were together. And yeah. I think that's the big biggest thing that, uh, and one of the things that we don't do. And, and then it, it, in the fun, connect at a deep level. If you can. Yeah. That's where you have to be careful about asking those questions. Right. Because you say, I want to go deep, and that means i got to start asking questions. You're not going deep. Right, <laughs> You're yeah. You're not going anywhere. Yeah, and maybe, maybe not making it the goal, making it just the inevitable. You spend enough time with somebody and you're listening, yeah. there, there's going to be a major chance, I think, to, to connect. Exactly. They see you as a good listener and you're there. That's what can happen. That's right. Well, we appreciate you. Dr. Thomas Philan uh, is his name. If you go check out his website, 123magic.com, and his book, 123Magic Teen, Communicate, Connect, and Guide Your Teen to Adulthood. Lots to learn, isn't there, as a parent? Don't just think because you've had kids, you know what to do with them. we got to learn. Stay on the learning curve, right? This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back, helping you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. Like I said in the beginning, this show is all about helping you live healthier and happier lives. We just heard from Dr. Phelan about how to communicate more effectively with your teen, which, in my opinion, would probably lead to a much happier life. So this next segment is going to talk about how we can lead healthier lives. Ron Hager joined the show again and talked to Matt about how to integrate physical activity into our lives and how to increase our longevity. Take a listen. Welcome back, friends. When you hear that music, you know that the health evangelist is with us. Dr. Ron Hager joins us. He's uh, Associate Professor of Exercise Sciences in the College of Life Sciences here at Brigham Young University. He is the death 
Uh, what do we used to call you? The death preventer. Preventer. <laughs> he prevents death, and he's really close to having to prevent mine. Uh, Dr. Ron, thanks for being with us. You're welcome. It's good to be here. I've had Again. a two-week cold, Yeah. <laughs> and it just got worse because I exercise. Ron, <laughs> and, now you're, and you're going to tell us today that we need to exercise, which we do. But sure. how do I exercise when I'm sick? Well, you need to eat too, but that doesn't oh, yeah. mean you need That's to true. eat all the time. That's true. Good point. You need to sleep, but you don't need to sleep all the time. See, we just need to do it when we can do it. Yeah, yeah. There are there are times. I mean, Matt, your body needs to rest. Uh, if your immune system is, you know, going full force, trying to make you better, it's taking a lot of energy. It's taking a lot of, uh, I guess, your your body's resources. I suppose you could say. And yeah, you know, exercise is also a demand on your body's resources to some extent, and. Um, I, I have talked to some physicians, and uh, a couple of them have told me that, you know, if you feel sick, if you feel like you have a cold or an illness, that if the symptoms are above your shoulders, yeah, that it's okay to exercise. Head cold, sore throat. Sure. But if the symptoms are below your shoulders, you know, feeling tightness in your chest mm-hmm. or your lungs or general body aches, you know, kind of like flu symptoms. Right. It's probably best to hold off off, for a few days. Let your body rest and heal. Because Uh, you want to – this is what I worry about because I know I can create a habit pretty easily and stick to it easily for two months. (laughs) Then I'll get sick or something will happen and I'm afraid that if it changes, then I won't get back to the habit. Oh, what if I don't get back? Well, you know – that, that that happens to a lot of people, for sure. I mean, it, it happens to me. I remember when I was working on a master's degree, I had a couple of friends, and we used to work out five days a week. Mm. And that included lifting weights. That included running, uh, cycling. We used to, uh, you know, do a lot of mountain biking and, and different things, and even swimming. Uh, there was a time when I was swimming a lot. That's uh, such a great— And, and doing, doing all of this every week. Mm-hmm. And then I went on to a different school to further my education and – Lost it all. all Lost that, the habits. All that disappeared because, yeah. you know, it was a pattern that I'd set with a couple other people mm-hmm. and the circumstances, the situation, the environment, it all changed and and I didn't I didn't persist. Do you suggest that we do – I mean I guess if you're social, doing it with other people makes it so much easier. Sure. But yeah. like I don't even want to be dependent on having to do it at a gym. Yeah. So one of my, my regimen I'm trying to create is more about anything I can do in my own house. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. The, the key, I guess, for most people is to find something that works yeah. for them. And um, figuring out a way to be accountable. Yeah, that's the key. You huh? know, feeling a sense of accountability. Um, you know, for a lot of people that is – it does involve some kind of social interaction. You know, well, so-and-so is going to show up. At yeah. the gym at six thirty in the morning, and if I don't go, you know they're gonna you know they're gonna be there, but I won't you know. So you feel this kind of accountability. That, like I have this coach Mindy Paskins, she's awesome, and she, but it is weird to have somebody to have to be accountable to. Yeah, but it's it's it's, but it helps. it's yeah you own it a lot more. But it helps, and of course the ultimate goal I suppose is to feel um, an intrinsic. That's sense, the key, huh? sense of accountability and and to feel better. Like right. if you actually would tune in and feel the change of getting healthier and stronger muscles and more flexibility and 
I mean, that just the feeling should keep you going or could sure. keep you going. Sure. And every once in a while, we have to, I guess, sort of fall off the rails. Yeah. So that we have this experience to remind us of why we do things. Yeah. I know. fell off the rails and then the rail just kept beating me. <laughs> exactly. Beating me. Exactly. So exercise, how do we know? And this is something I ask my fitness coach. Like, how do I know? Because a lot of this is about metabolism. We've talked about that. But sure. keeping – but also – Knowing what's the right rate of exercise, when you're in the right zone of exercise, talk about what we need to know to exercise. Well, I think the biggest key, uh, Matt, is figuring out what works best for you. You know, we've had this idea of an ex- what's called the exercise prescription model for a lot of years. You know, it came out with the American College of Sports Medicine recommendations, and it's it's the thing that everybody's heard of. You know, it is it is a prescription. You know. Uh, you know, for cardiovascular exercise, you know, a minimum of three times per week with your heart rate in an exercise training zone, which is, you know, uh, you know, a, a certain percentage of your maximum heart rate. And, uh, you know, and it has to be, you know, uh, continuous uh, activity, you know, uh, these kinds of things. It's very prescriptive. It's kind of a, you know, you know, Figure out how to do it. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, as far as as long as meeting those guidelines, you know, sort of a a one size fits all. I mean, it's it's very much like taking a medication, right? <clears throat> you know, what what happened later was something called the Lifetime Physical Activity Model (LTPA), um, and that was uh, based on some research that had been done, starting, uh, you know, in the you know through through the nineteen eighties. A lot of uh, really cool research was coming out on the benefits, the health benefits of physical activity. And uh, the the lifetime physical activity model kind of deviated from the exercise prescription model in that, uh, you know, you could do things that were lifetime, lifestyle related. Mm-hmm. You know, now, that, that's not to say that, you know, if a person loves to run, you know, that, you know, running – say, in an exercise prescription uh, type of uh, format wouldn't work, that would. Right. But what about people that don't like to run or don't like to bike or don't like to swim? What about people who like to garden or what about people who like to, you know, hike or, you know, these other kinds of things? Yeah. So the real key is, you know, figuring it out for yourself. You know, I mean, the exercise prescription model is kind of a do it to you. Yeah, yeah. Just take this pill. Yeah, the ex- the lifetime physical activity model is you figuring out what's yeah. going to work best for you. And that, the, I guess, the key is because everyone's different, and you sure. also have to be able to sustain it. Yeah. Forever. Yeah. Because really, we shouldn't ever be done exercising. No. No, you know, I, you always I, bring great examples of the eighty-year-old, yeah. the hundred-year-old, the ninety-year-old. Yeah. yeah, and I w- actually wanted to mention uh, something about that. Uh, you know, I've been doing a little reading and listening to some podcasts and stuff uh, from a a man named Dan Butner. Uh, he's like a National Geographic fellow or something like that, researcher, and he works with an actual team of researchers too, epidemiologists and demographers and a, a group of people who study other people, mm-hmm. and they, they've gone all around the world. Uh, looking for uh, groups of people who have longevity, you know, that, that, that have like the highest percentages of any population for centenarians, people 100 years old and older and so forth. And then they've studied these people and they've found 
what they call these blue zones. Uh, one right here in the United States in uh, in California. It's a blue zone, like blue-haired zone. I guess. I guess is that I, I where suppose, they're getting yeah, the blue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't know exactly what, where the blue word blue comes from or the, that specific color, but um, Okinawa, Japan, is another one. Hmm. Um, um, uh, a place in Italy, you know, in a, in a Mediterranean type of a, wow. uh, of an environment, and they identify these blue zones, and and so they look for. Uh, you know, the commonalities among these groups of people and they're finding, you know, things related to diet and uh, and uh, and family and social connections. Hmm. And so it's not just, you know, the physical things. There's a lot of, uh, you know, kind of the social, psychological uh, types of things as well. But one of the things that they noted across all of these populations, uh, we're talking about the people that live the longest and maintain health. I mean, we're talking about like 90, 95, 100-year-olds wow. that are still chopping wood, still, <laughs> yeah. still riding their bicycles across town, you know. Uh, but one of the common things that, that I think a lot of people find surprising is these people don't exercise. What? Yeah, they don't exercise. Okay. Yet, yet, they're, they're very physically active. Yeah. So they actually incorporated activity into their life. It's not like this thing we do... In addition to life. Lifetime physical activity. Love that. That's yeah. cool. Let's take a break and come back and talk about that. Okay. How do we create and integrate physical activity more into our life? Instead, I mean, it's interesting. Instead of it being our life and then we exercise. Right. It's just part of life exactly. is the activity. More with Dr. Ron Hager, our health evangelist, up next. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer. We'll be back. to the Matt Townsend Show. In studio with us is our health evangelist, who better than Dr. Ron Hager to help us uh, learn to be healthier. Dr. Ron, you were talking about these blue, what do you call them, blue, blue zones. Blue zones, yeah. Around the world, there's certain little pockets of people that are able to live healthy, incredible lives well into their 95, 100 years old. Yeah. yeah. Now, to be fair, a lot of this, you know, it does have to do with their diet and, and how active they are. But like I said, there's also very strong family connections, hmm. um, you know, multi-generational connections, uh, either within the same home or within the same neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and have you ever made bread? I mean, yeah. have you ever physically made bread yourself? Mm-hmm. It's a chore. It's a it's task. It's a workout. It's a workout. For example, these people, you know, make a lot of their own food like that. They'll, they'll make bread and and then they'll walk to distribute the extra loaves to their neighbors. You know, mm. so there's this sense of giving and receiving. There's yeah. this sense of physical labor. There's this sense of, uh, you know, transporting yourself via your own, uh, you know, power. You know, you're not... You're not, you know, you're not getting in the car. car you're going to walk. Yeah. yeah. You no, also talked about their... Um, I don't know if we did it on the air or not. You talked about their furniture. Oh, yeah. So like in, in, in Okinawa, Japan, for example, uh, particularly among the women... Uh, you know they don't have a lot of furniture. You know their their beds are on the floor. They when they eat they sit on the floor to eat and yeah. this kind of thing. It's uh, you know a, a, an Asian kind of a cultural thing. Um, but the women 
may get up and down off the floor at 80, 90 years old, uh, you know, 40, 50, 60 it's times amazing. in a day. Yeah. You know, like, like think about that. Like yeah. for a, think of just a regular 90 year old person to think about getting back down on the floor and back up once. Well, for most people, you know, you start getting into your even your 50s, yeah. your 60s, your 70s. I imagine there are people who can't remember the last time they were on the floor. Mm hmm. And imagine that would keep you limber, sure. healthy. I mean, it's just it's, there's so many, and it, those are subtle little things. Yeah, you know, and that's really what it's about. You know, a lot of people think that you know getting in shape or getting fit or staying healthy has to revolve around something extreme. Yeah, but it's really just a lot of small things uh, that you do. Now, now, how did we end up like this? Uh, we live in a a world today, especially you know in these first world, I suppose you could say, environments where our opportunities to be active have been systematically eliminated. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I just want to mention a couple ideas. This this actually comes from a, a study. Uh, ABA Radio, thanks for listening. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. Bad. <laughs> I am listening. Uh, this, this actually comes from a study published in Nutrition uh, uh, in, in 2003. They talk about uh, nutrition and diet and physical activity and uh, and even smoking and and how all of these things impact longevity and and they give some examples now the first thing one of the first things they they mention uh, you know is that this is not new okay Hippocrates uh, you know a, a physician and philosopher from a long time ago yeah you know uh, said to keep well avoid too much food and too little toil huh okay now that's a pretty simple piece of advice right. But it's it's pretty profound it's pretty because good. because we are a society who overeats and is very sedentary, so <laughs> the exact opposite of what he recommended. Now now I want to give you some examples. If you go back, um, you know, to the 1800s, uh, physical activity was a pretty universal thing. Right. Uh, you know the, the the types of labor that were required for daily subsistence. You either had to do physically yourself, or you had to involve you know beasts of burden or animals or something like that, which was also not only hard work for the animal, but pretty laborious for the, you right. know, the person running the animals as well. Um, but but here here are a few examples they give. Sebastian Bach, the the musician, uh, was was so fond of music that quote many times he walked the thirty mile distance to Hamburg to hear the greatest organist of the day. Wow. Okay, thirty miles. Thirty miles. One way. So so let's just say here we are in Provo, Utah. Let's just say there's a concert in South Salt Lake at. Uh, you know, so somewhere up there. Can you imagine saying to your friends, you know, here at the radio station, you whatever, want. hey, there's a concert going on tonight up in Salt Lake. I was thinking about walking up there. Anybody want to go? Amazing. No, see, That's cool. See, that doesn't even enter your right. your, your, no your, way. your mind nowadays. Take the train. Uh, William Turner, uh, an artist, uh, used to cover 20 to 25 miles a day with his baggage at the end of a stick sketching mm. rapidly on his way. So this is a guy, you know, the, kind of the hobo yeah. look, you know, with, you, you know, you take a a cloth and tie your bag at the end of you yeah. know yeah so and then he would and he would sketch yeah 20 to 25 miles a day and then Abraham Lincoln would walk 30 miles round trip to obtain a book he wanted to read like to go to the library yeah yeah oh i've got a research paper i know the library is 30 miles away but i, I got to get there cuz i got to get this done and for now we can sit and literally just move our finger maybe 3 4 times right. and you can buy the same book right so my point is why did these people do these things yeah because there was no alternative. Right. 
we have we live in a world of alternatives nowadays. You, oh, you never have to do so these things true. if you don't want to. So you have to figure out a way to get this back in your life. And and the passion they all each one of these also illustrates a passion. Sure. So maybe that's the key to to stay active is engage your passion. At least part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Here, here's another quote that I really like that helps drive this point home from uh, Marcus. Um, uh, a, a Roman poet. Uh, Is it Marcus Aurelius? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He lived a, a long time ago, uh, you know, clear back in like yeah. 100 AD. Here's something he said. Why do strong arms fatigue themselves with frivolous dumbbells <laughs> to dig a vineyard? is worthier exercise for men. Holy cow. So we have, we have displaced our natural opportunities, and then we go by gym memberships, it's which so for the most true. part we don't even use, so we can pump some iron. Yeah. No, it's so and, true. And pumping iron was really never a natural thing Work for the, the human organism. No, I'm installing a disposal. That takes more pumping of iron and muscle and movement and actually fulfillment but if you only do then, it every five right. years, no, that, exactly. that, that's probably that's not, not going to work for no. you, right? Yeah. So you've got to find these, these ways to, to be active. Yeah. That's great. Wow. It's crazy to think people live to 100 years old. I feel more inspired to take up my yoga routine again. Okay. So we learned quite a few things today, like to let teens direct their own conversations that having fun with your kids will lead to much better communication than helicopter parenting. And that staying healthy and fit doesn't necessarily mean doing extreme sports and dieting. It's all in the small things. Well, I hope you feel a little healthier and happier after today's episode. Thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with more Matt Townsend.